Well, we as Americans love our freedom, and we've fought many wars to protect our freedom. We're willing to wave the banner when our rights are threatened. But is this what Christ would do? Well, that's our subject on today's edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. And once again, it's time for our end of the week Q&A session with Pastor Mike Fabares. Today's topic is one that has been debated among believers for centuries. The question, is it right for peace-loving Christians to wage war? Can we, in good conscience, serve in the military? A contentious subject with far-reaching implications. To address these issues head-on, let's enter the pastor's study with the executive director of Focal Point, Jay Wharton. Well, thank you, Dave. I am here with Pastor Mike. And Pastor Mike, someone asks, as Christians, should we be for war or should we be pacifists? Yeah, there's a lot of war in our history as uh, Americans. And certainly um, in the Bible, we open the Bible and we find as we start reading in the beginning, there's all kinds of war going on in the Old Testament. Now, remember, the New Testament is a snapshot of just the ministry of Christ and the apostles. The Old Testament covers so much more ground, so many centuries of, of history. And in that history, we find that God is often describing warfare and oftentimes even implementing and, and organizing and prompting warfare. I mean, you take the Canaanites, for instance, that were sacrificing their children and the sin that went on in these uh, countries that were just deplorable and thinkable, the immorality, the murderous sacrifices going on. And, and God would prompt his people to be an arm of justice to go in and deliver those who were under this kind of oppression. The book of Judges, we see it 13, 14 times over and over again, the oppression of a foreign entity being overthrown by warfare. So yeah, we see a lot of war in the Bible to right a wrong. Of course, there are descriptions of war that weren't for that purpose, but when God is showing some kind of favor toward warriors, it's so that the oppressor will be freed from his oppression and that uh, some kind of, uh, of organization or group of people or nation that won't listen to reason and, and won't respond to conviction ends up having to respond at the uh, tip of a spear. So is there any room for pacifism in the New Testament and in our current lives? Well, I think we often misunderstand the principles of the restraining of evil in the church, for instance, that we're doing that with the proclamation of the truth. And certainly in that sense, the organization of the church is pacifistic. We're not engaging in warfare. We're not advancing the cause of Christ with bombs and, and, and guns. And on a personal level, we're called to refrain from engaging in any kind of retaliatory acts or returning even a slap for a slap. That's just not what we're called to do on a, on a personal level. But when it comes to the government, it has a unique role uh, to avenge evil with the sword. That's what Romans 13 is all about. So if you're saying, can I as an individual have a kind of a pacifistic philosophy as I deal with my uh, fellow humans on the planet? Well, yeah, sure. In, in our own relationships, we can. And as a church, we're not a militant organization, certainly not in a literal sense. But the government itself has a mandate from God 
to avenge evil, and if need be, with weapons of warfare, literal weapons of warfare. So as Christians, do we need to agree with our government every time they're going to war? Of course not. And, and we can think about the Christians that may exist in another country that we have gone and fought a just war against. And in that case, you'd have to say, well, if there's any kind of justice in this war, then some Christians on one side or the other in terms of the government is going to have to rightly look at God's word and say, hey, my government is on the losing side of this, uh, at least the argument of standing up for and fighting for what's right. So this goes back to a long and drawn out discussion of what it means to be a theological thinker and engage only in just war. We have to make sure that the reasons we go to war and take up arms against another country or group of people is for a just, a biblically just cause. And that's not always the case. And, and I think we have to be very careful and not just say, well, if the government's there to bear the sword, it can bear the sword whenever it wants to whomever or against whomever it wants. That's just not the case. No, we need to be very discerning about it. So what is our responsibility as citizens of the United States for us in terms of war and pacifism or objecting against war? Should I join the armed forces? Is there other ways I should support these things or not support them? Right. Well, there's no problem serving in the armed forces. Uh, You look at this even in the scripture when people were converted, for instance, at the preaching of John the Baptist. I mean, here were warriors with weapons of war in their hand, and they asked, what should we do if we repent? And John the Baptist had a great opportunity to say, well, well, you shouldn't be in this line of work, but we never find that. As a matter of fact, we find God choosing people to save in these professions. I think of Cornelius in, in the middle of the book of Acts, people that were leading in armies that were never called to abandon their jobs. So we can certainly argue that the Bible does not see being in military service as anything that is inherently or necessarily evil or wrong or sinful. Christians can and should uh, serve their countries and engage, if they're called to, in just war if that is what's before them. But it doesn't mean everyone has to. And there is a sense in which there really is a conscientious objection to engaging in war, either because the war is not in our minds a just war, or maybe someone just says, that's just not something I could ever see myself doing. And I would want to accommodate a conscience that says, I just can't do that. And we find a lot of groups uh, that have differed with me on my view of warfare throughout church history that have said, we won't take up arms against another country, but we want to support the cause in some other way. A lot of Christians went into the medical corps, went into a lot of other diplomatic kinds of uh, arms of the government to try and do their part to win a just cause, but not by taking up arms against other people. And certainly that would be a fine way to go about it if your conscience will not allow you to engage uh, in actually taking up arms against an enemy. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I I trust this has been a helpful and timely discussion for our listeners. We're going to continue this conversation with a message you gave called Elections, Activism, and Civil Disobedience. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, I mean, if you want to put it in classic paradigm terms, I mean, it's, it's the state and it's the church, church and state. It's my relationship with God and my relationship with the government. It's being a good Christian and being a good citizen. And those are overlapping spheres that I live in, and I live under both. And Jesus now says, well, there's stuff you've got to render, give, or, or, or defer to Caesar. And then there's things you need to defer to God. And, and that sounds hard, and I want him to explain it, that it's not as hard to figure out as you might think. 
because you do this to your kids and you expect them to know intuitively how to live with two authorities in their lives, put them on a sports team, for instance, just by way of example. My middle kid, 12 years old, Johnny's playing again this year on the Little League uh, District 55 All-Star uh, Baseball team. And he's got a coach, and he lives under the authority of the coach, and I don't even have to tell him this because he knows I expect him to be a good player, respectful to the coach, obedient to the coach. When the coach says, run a lap, run a lap, if he says, pitch five more times, you do it. You do what the coach says. You live under the authority of the coach. But then again, here's what he needs to understand and probably never needs to be told, and that is when you're a baseball player on that team, you don't cease to be my son. And my rules and my authority and everything I've taught you does not somehow go away because you're on the baseball team. Now, the baseball team can be a kind of environment that uh, is different than the environment at home, just to drive this point to our point of application. I mean, certainly the government operates with a different set of values and different set of principles than does God's kingdom. So, I mean, they're in conflict at times, and so it is with my kids' baseball team. Uh, for instance, uh, we were, I was dropping him off the other day, and uh, we were running late, and he needed some hydration, and I stopped at the 7-Eleven across from the ball field, and I said, go in and get yourself a, you know, a, some Gatorade, and, and off to the game you'll go. And he said, oh, this is where my... Uh, this is where my coach stops off before the games to get his chewing tobacco. I said, oh, okay, that's great. Now, my coach is a decent baseball coach, but he's not a great model for life for my kid. For instance, chewing tobacco. I've told him, if you chew tobacco, we'll cut your tongue out. I mean, I don't know, we've, <laughs> we've threatened him, this is not good, we don't want you coming home chewing tobacco. And, and I know that his, my kid's coach's language is a lot more colorful than what he'll hear at home. And he knows the rules about profanity, and he knows that that's not, uh, it's not acceptable. I mean, the Bible is our constitution, and it says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, and you won't hear it from mom and dad, and you're not going to have it. We don't want you to not use those words in our home alone. When you're on the baseball field, you can't use them. He could come home and he could say, well, you know, the coach, uh, he's told us he's a really cool coach. Everybody in the dugout can cuss if they want to. He could tell us that. But he knows that even if his coach allows something that his authority, his dad, knows is not allowed, he's got to balance this because he recognizes it doesn't matter what the coach says if it has to do with something allowed by the coach but not allowed by his father. But that doesn't mean that uh, he doesn't run laps when the coach says run laps or do push-ups or whatever the weird things that they do or do more drills. He, he's got to do that. If... The coach at some point imposes a new rule that before you go out and, and, and play the game, the championship game, everyone has to chew tobacco for half an hour, right? Uh, just, this is all an illustration. I don't think that he's doing any of this. Um, of course, my son now wouldn't just say, I'm not going to do what he allows. Now he has to actually be disobedient to his coach, right? Because he knows his, his dad has said you can't do that. Do you understand that kind of dual authority is not something complicated for a kid? It may be uncomfortable at times, and it may even be uh, difficult and costly at times for him, and it may cost him his reputation among the other players, but that kind of balancing act is not something that needs, you know, lecture after lecture to explain to him how this works, particularly because he already knows and hears from dad from time to time that when it comes to baseball, that's not your life. It's a part of your life. 
Now, 96%, and these are just rough and dirty numbers I'm throwing out. It's a Mike Fabarism, but, but let's just say 96% of the New Testament is going to hammer this at us. Be loyal to God. Be faithful to God. Be obedient to God. Follow God. And then about 4% of the New Testament, as you open up the Bible, you look at Titus 3, 1 through 8, you look at passages in, in Peter, several of them, and you look at this passage in Romans 13, you recognize that a lot of the scripture, or at least you know, a small portion of it, I guess by comparison, is going to tell us that you need to be loyal to, to the coach, to the government, because they're a rightful authority. That authority is in your life because God has determined for it to be, and you are to be a good citizen. Now, just by the preponderance of, of proportionalism here, we have a clear understanding that God does not equate these authorities, even though I live under the authority of my government. We are citizens of heaven. First, I'm a Christian. First, I'm a citizen of the United States. Second. And if I can start to get some of that in perspective, as a kid kind of innately gets in his own family life before he joins the baseball team, it may help to answer some of the more thorny or difficult questions that arise as a Christian in a country under a government that is not living by the same values as God or his kingdom. I must obey my government until obedience to my government makes me disobedient to Christ. I must obey my government, even if taxes get crazy, even if the things that they ask me to do to fill out forms before I can plant a tree in my yard, if it gets nuts, I've got to obey my government. Until obedience to the government and its rules specifically lead me to be disobedient to Christ. We looked at, uh, I don't know, a big uh, idol in, in, in the valley that was erected to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they said, you got to bow down and worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no. Can't do that. So they arrested him. They heated up the furnace. They said, we're going to throw you in the furnace. They said, fine, throw us in the furnace if you want, but we're not going to do it. They were evangelizing in Acts 4 and 5. And they said, stop evangelizing. Don't do it. Don't make disciples of all the nations. And they said, I'm sorry, we have to. Now, that was the clear and simple example. God blesses that kind of civil disobedience, if you want to call it that. But before we go too far with this, let's make sure we clarify what we're saying and what we're not saying. We want our governments to be like a church. They can't be. That's not what they are. They're led by unregenerate people. There is an anti-Christian, anti-God movement on every government of the world, even if they have Christian principles of right and wrong built into their, their founding documents or their law code. Therefore, I can't expect the same things there. And in my mind, I've got to recognize that's just the way a lot of it is. Do I want it to change? Yes. Do I ignore the bad? No. Well, what do I do? Seven things. Jot down these references real quick. Mark 8, 14 and 15. Luke 22, 25 through 27. In both of these passages, Jesus uses the government as an example of what we should not be. My first responsibility is to point out the wrong of the government to the church so that they don't mirror that. He tells them this. Here's an amazing statement from Christ. He tells his disciples, just to mix another metaphor, watch out for the leaven of Herod. Herod, he was the Roman leader of the government. In Luke 22, he says, you know, in the, uh, amongst the kings of the Gentiles, they love to lord their authority over people and then call themselves benefactors. What hypocrites. It's not supposed to be that way with you. The government, my first responsibility, is to point out the bad of the government and say, don't be like that. Right? Kids, don't be like Congressman Weiner. How about that? Does that help? <laughs> 
I want to point out that about the, that's responsibility number one. Responsibility number two, as I have opportunity, I want to point out the leaven of the government to the government. I want to point out the evil of the government to the government. Okay, there are plenty of biblical examples of this. How about Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 20? John the Baptist exhorted the people and preached the good news. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John the Baptist because of his marriage to Herodias, which was his brother's wife, it was an immoral relationship, and he was reproved for all the other evil things that Herod had done. Now, it doesn't end well for John. He gets his head cut off in chapter 6 of Mark, and he gets thrown in prison in this passage, but he definitely has no problem saying, hey, you're sinning. So for those of you that are inclined to write letters when you see things, just make sure you do it honorably, respectfully, but that's fine. You need to point out the sin of the government to the government. Make it clear that it's wrong. Fine. Paul, before the governor of Judea, what was that, Acts 24, he's standing before Felix, same thing. He preaches on three things. He preaches on righteousness, the standard of righteousness, self-control, which Felix didn't have, just like Herod didn't have it, and marrying all kinds of people he shouldn't, and the coming judgment. Or how about Justin Martyr in the first century, at the end of the first century? I love this letter to the Roman Senate. He says to the emperor in the Roman Senate, he says, I give you advanced warning. You will certainly not escape the coming judgment of God if you persist in your injustice. If you want to quote him for your senator or governor or your congressman, fine. You can write that to them. Do it respectfully. It definitely not only in Christian tradition, it is within the pages of the Christian scripture that there's nothing wrong. It is actually appropriate for you to point out the sin of the government to the government. Number three, to serve in the government. As we've already made the point, I don't need to belabor this, but when Christian evangelists hit people that worked for the government, they never gave them a lecture, a call, a command to change their occupation. Whether they were soldiers, centurions who trained soldiers, tax collectors for the Roman IRS, Zacchaeus, Levi, Matthew, you know these people. Cornelius. Even Paul himself is trying to convert King Agrippa II, trying to turn him into a Christian. Now I know he's under arrest and on a trial, but he doesn't have a problem sharing the gospel. And I guarantee you, if he becomes a Christian, he's not going to say, you've got to quit now. So all I'm saying is some of you are inclined to serve in some level of the government. It can be civil service. It can be governmental service. Actually, I wouldn't mind seeing some of you uh, replace some of the folks on the uh, city council. Wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, I say that respectfully, but some of you need to sign up for that. I'll, I'll vote for you. Um, do you get what I'm saying here? Nothing wrong with civil service. Nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, we got in big time, we got Joseph in Egypt, although that was not his career plan, and Daniel in Babylon and Medo-Persia, that wasn't his career plan either, but they did it. Daniel did it for years, decades, through multiple kings and, and monarchs, and even empires, he, from Babylon to the Medo-Persian empire. So serving in government, great. And some of you are inclined to do that, have at it, do it. Stand up for what's right. Be a reasonable, respectable, just servant of the government. Number four. You and I need to set the example for the rest of society. We need to be an example to the government and the rest of society. Titus 3, verses 1 through 8 would be a good place to start. Even Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said about salt and light. I am to be an example to the pagan government and the pagan society. When my kid, say my kid, back to the Little League. My kid's coach, let's say, none of this is true, say, hey, kids, you can cuss all you want to in the dugout. My kid should sit there as a good example and never cuss. See what I'm saying? And you and I, they can say, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this if you want. We should say, listen, we're only going to do what the Bible tells us we can and cannot do. So be a good example. That's what Titus 3, 1 through 8 is all about. Number five, you want to see things bettered in our country? 
You need to evangelize as many people as possible. Because even if you do change laws, right, we're never going to change behavior unless we change hearts. So we've got to share the gospel. You want a passage for that? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, what? New creation. Old is gone, new is come. You want new things to come? In people in our society, you better be sharing the life-changing message of repentance and faith and devotion to Christ. That's what we need to preach. So evangelize as many people as possible. Number six, you should vote. And every time there's an opportunity to vote, you better go in there informed, knowing something about the issues or the people being elected and vote. Number seven, you need to pray for your kings and for those in authority that what they do would end up allowing us to do what we need to do. In this case, to live a dignified life, a quiet life, a godly life. Jeremiah chapter 29. Would you turn to Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7? Here's some instruction to some expatriates who were being taken to Babylon, a pagan government, and they were going to live there for 70 years at least. And here's what God had to say to those expatriates. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, now you're not here amongst your own people in your own country. You're now under the government of a pagan, you know, idol-worshiping king. What am I supposed to do? Well, here's what you're supposed to do. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, go to Lowe's, go to Home Depot, get your house in order. Take wives, rent out the banquet hall, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So get out there and be a good Christian who's also a good citizen. Let's pray. God, these are important issues for us, and I pray they wouldn't just be academic issues of, of the past and of history, but that we might recognize that no matter what pressure is placed upon us, that we would think biblically, respond biblically, to be praying, to be responding, to be serving when we're called upon to do so, to do what we can do in our nation, our government, our state, our county, that we might uh, enhance its welfare. We'd like it to go well for our country because when it does, it goes well for us. Let us be focused ultimately and, and with the preponderance of our lives and the, the majority of our effort on things that will last a hundred, a thousand, and ten thousand years from now. So get us busy about the work of the kingdom while we're faithful and conscientious about being good citizens of our country. I ask that for us that we might grow in Christ in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ in whose name I pray. Amen. Obedience to our government, unless it calls for disobedience to Christ. A practical message from Pastor Mike Fabares. You're listening to Focal Point, and you just heard a portion of the message titled Elections, Activism, and Disobedience. If you'd like to hear the complete uncut version, go to focalpointradio.org. Or if you'd like to browse through other messages by Pastor Mike, you can do that on our website as well, or on your favorite podcasting app. Even easier, you can simply download the free Focal Point mobile app to your smartphone or tablet for instant access wherever you go. You'll find these resources and more at focalpointradio.org. Well, as believers today, we're constantly bombarded by political debates. And while it's clear that our allegiance should first be to God before any human authority, 
What that looks like in our daily life isn't always quite as clear-cut. That's why we need to be deeply rooted in God's Word, allowing it to transform our hearts and minds. And that's the goal of Focal Point. We're here for you every day with solid Bible teaching so you can grow in biblical wisdom to help you navigate the murky waters of daily life. And this month, we also have a book we'd like to send you to help you better understand God's will for you. And this is the last time I'll mention this resource on the program. The book is called A Cloud by Day, A Fire by Night, and it comes with our thanks for your generous donation today. If you've ever wondered what God's will is for you personally, then this book by the late A.W. Tozer will be a breath of fresh air. It's yours for your gift of any amount, so call 888-320-5885. Or online, go to focalpointradio.org. Through your generosity, we can deliver Pastor Mike's compelling, expositional teaching by internet, podcast, app, and hundreds of radio stations nationwide. Thank you for investing so others are served. Go to focalpointradio.org. Dave Drewy here, wishing you a great weekend ahead and inviting you back next time for more Focal Point. This program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.